Welcome, welcome my friends to the Beggars and Brawlers podcast. This is episode number 20, recorded Friday the 21st of May 2021, and today I've got the last preview chapter from my upcoming audiobook, Witch of Wealth and Ruin, plus a little talk on choosing spoken voices for my characters. Because as you can hear in this one, it can get complicated. So, without further ado, I give you Chapter 5 of Witch of Wealth and Ruin, Book 2 in the Tidecaller Chronicles. If you haven't read Book 1, Daughter of Flood and Fury, you might want to go back and do that to avoid spoilers uh, listening to it here. But if you have, and you've listened to the other preview chapters, I hope you enjoy this one, and I'll see you at the end for some talk on bringing a story to life in audio, which is a really strange process because... The way that I hear the voices on the page and the things that I can actually do with my voice when I'm narrating it are quite different. So I'll see you at the end for that and enjoy the chapter meanwhile. Five. My mind churns like a riptide. Put me in here? What do you mean? Did you intercede with the amaranth? Hardly, Hiana says. The amaranth and I are good friends. Allies, even, though he doesn't understand the extent to which his actions benefit me more than himself. He's old blood, you have to understand. Classic Dura, in a time where the classics are getting outdated. I take a deep breath. So you convinced him to send me here, instead of something worse? Even as I say it, I know it's wrong. But hope is a dangerous thing, and I have pinned mine on her. I told him to do it, she says calmly. Told him you'd be coming, sent him the book so he could stock it in his library, and warned him of the kind of powers you might bring to bear. For a second, I don't know what to say. Then white-hot rage burns down my veins. You betrayed me? Please, Alethea, let's not fight here when you refuse the Michelle out there. And anyway, she brushes a gloved hand against the coin's radiating power on her chest. I think you know by now who would win. I almost do it anyway, despite knowing she's wearing much more than the guards who handled me like a doll. Despite the guards here that would no doubt come running, and maybe not feel compelled to leave me whole now that I spit in their face on the battlefield. Almost, but the waters rush in my mind even as I work to still the maelstrom in my gut. Hiana betrayed me. She's not an ally, but she's here for something, which means I still have leverage. So this whole thing was a trap. I say it as much to sink the words into my mind to help the sea change it means in my understanding of my situation. You lured me into burgling the tower, then arranged it so I'd be guilty of the highest crime in Duran, and your friend would get possession of me. I did. She rearranges her skirts, then sits on the sole seat in the corner, as if to say she's unafraid of me even here and now, knowing what I know. I hate to admit it, but she's right. There's nothing I can do to her with her vitality. But knowledge can undo disadvantages, and we still have our war of words. It's cute how shocked you are, she goes on, before I've found my next move. Your father was like that, too. He always expected the best in people, so much that it blinded him. You're wrong about one point, though. 
The Amaranth doesn't own you, however much you broke into his tower. That's not how possession works in Darani's law. I narrow my eyes. You do, because the book is still yours. Very good. Of course, I owe him a few favors now, but the sorts of things he wants are generally easy to come by. Maybe I'll even have you do some of them yourself. Outside the door to the sands, someone howls in pain. Despite myself, I turn to see an absolute beast of a man slam a club into a boy half his size, face already bloodied. The boy falls and the beast grins, spreading his arms to the crowd. They roar approval. I will do nothing for you, I say, icing my disgust. I turn back to Hiana. Not until you get me out of here. I thought I might leave you in for a while, she says lightly, adjusting a necklace of Alarium coins in a pile thick enough to be a shawl. It might make you more compliant. And what of your plan? I do you no good here. On the contrary, half of what you earn in here is mine. But you're right, it would be better to move quickly, especially with Yelat in the picture. We can't let Nerimes and his cabal secure too strong a hold on the city. The terms of our agreement will have to change, of course. What terms? You are already asking me to outright subvert our trade laws to make you an amaranth. Yes, and I will need that, but I'd rather subvert them myself. More howls sound behind me, and I can't help but look back. The boy is down, and the big man stomps on his body to roars of approval from the crowd. Every fiber in me itches to run out and stop him. You could go out there, you know. The gate isn't locked. The crowd likes that kind of thing, the sudden upsets and fights. But there's no way you'd win against the bull. Wealth shimmers on his chest, heavy bands of coins slung across scarred muscles. I was trained to stop this kind of man, to stop Saray from being a city where such things could happen. I clench my teeth and turn back. I have my own fight to win first. So you would be queen instead of me? No, I doubt your people would accept me. They still need to see you on the throne, or whatever office we come up with. But I will need to be the one making the actual decisions. Your royal advisor, present at every meeting and consulted on every decision. We could be wed, maybe. I'll come up with something. I ice the revulsion that rolls up in me, imagining marrying this woman, as Nerimes did Yeolat. Ice it because I need a clear head, and because if Hiana sees I have no intention of playing along, I will lose whatever slim bargaining power I have here. I take a deep breath and force out, that could work. And it could. Once the city is taken, once I have Gaxna back, and I'm installed as some kind of ruler, I can use that power to oust her, expose her true intentions like I tried to with Nerimes. Hiana watches me with a lidded gaze, and unbidden my toes squirm, as if to reassure myself we're on dry ground and she can't read my thoughts. I will need certain assurances, of course, the woman says, shifting her necklaces. I catch a glimpse of dark tattoos on the collarbone beneath. The screams coming from the arena are pitiful now. My stomach tightens, knowing that could be me next time. You mentioned assurances at the cafe. What are you asking exactly? 
She reaches into the folds of her gown and pulls out a glass tube the size of my finger. A vial of your blood, given in full consent. Fill this up, and we can leave now. It's an effort to keep the shock from my face. My mind reels. Blood? Are you working with the Theracans? I remember Gaxna in Narimace's bedchamber, forced to attack me against her will, and I shudder. No, dear, but I know someone who could be paid. In the meantime, it would keep you from misbehaving, wouldn't it? I ice the revulsion that comes up again, remembering Gaxna's story of how she left the Theracans Guild, of being forced to murder someone, then putting out her own eye to escape their blood push. I thought I'd found the answer in blinding their push as I can watersight, but with the ways Miara and Narimace break the rules of our magic, I'm not so sure anymore. One thing I am sure of, I never want Miara and Hiana to start working together, and who knows how many Miara has taught her tricks to by now. My blind. I remember it, raise it thick here just to summon my own discipline. This is still a battle whether we are using words or weapons, and as she changes stances, I have to respond, have to find the knowledge or advantage that will turn the tide, because I can feel myself losing. Before we go any further, I say, I need to know you actually have the power to get me out, or all this talk means nothing. You've seen these? Hiana holds up a copper signet with a crude A scratched into it. If I give this to the arena auditor, your debt will be considered repaid, and you can leave here a free woman. If I give it to Booker instead, it means you will go out there again tomorrow. She nods behind me, where the battle has just been the thump of a boot and decreasing cries of pain for some time now. And with your performance today, I don't doubt he'll arrange something more dangerous for you tomorrow. They don't take kindly to non-compliance here. I can't quite ice my shudder. Not at dying like the boy out there. I am competent enough to go out better. But at the bloodthirsty roar of the crowd, and the feeling that now more than ever the only thing keeping me from that are my own wits and hands. I force nonchalance into my voice, glancing back at the scene. He's gonna kill him then? I imagine so, unless someone throws him a coin, she says with the same air of indifference. I don't frequent the arena, but as I understand it, the boy's been around for some time, worn out his appeal. As bad as my situation is, it's good to remember it could be worse. What does a coin do? When a fighter has no coins to seed in defeat, the victor can feel free to beat or kill them instead. The crowd often tips handsomely for that. If someone up there is moved to throw wealth for the loser, however, the winner is obligated to take that in place of his life. A pity coin, it's called. Throw him one. Yana meets my gaze levelly. Give me your blood. To have you just take it and walk out of here? I don't think so. Show me you're serious. Throw him a coin. She smiles. That sweet little heart of yours will get you in trouble, Alethea. Especially if you let people see it. But here. She pulls a copper mark from one of her braids of coins, then ties a red cloth to it and throws it through the bars. A gong sounds and the giant man pulls back, looking around with a wild light in his eyes. A killing light. His face is spattered in blood, 
and it's only then I notice a second body on the sands, this one unmoving. I should be afraid, but I just feel the urge to take him down, as strong as the one I feel against Narimes and Hiana now, too. So many enemies, so little time. Hiana turns back to me. Satisfied? Bring me the chronicles and we can talk. Partially because my heart still aches at the loss of my father's letter, and partially because whatever secrets he thought were there might apply to her, too. Her facade cracks for just a moment, the muscles in her jaw flexing. Ain't gonna leave you here, girl. Blood does me nothing if you don't come, too. I start at the change in her tone, but keep mine level. I think it might be worth quite a bit to certain people in Saray. Nerimes? Hiana jerks at her necklaces. Trust me, I want nothing from him. Then bring me the chronicles. I can't do that. Then I can't help you. It's a gamble, but she wouldn't have stayed even this long if she didn't truly need me for her plans. Hiana stands, icy composure regained. Then I will be putting your signet in again today. Maybe you'll face him tomorrow. She nods to the bull, who is still egging on the crowd. I ice the wave of anxiety that rolls over me. I would rather die here on my own terms than live under this woman's control. And I think Gaxon would want that too. I hope she would. She waves for the jailer to unlock the inner gate. Think hard, girl. I won't be patient forever. Another man radiating vitality comes and lets her out, shooting me a glower. Outside, attendants drag the broken boy and the other body away to cheers from the crowd. I watch with deep breaths, trying to still the roiling in my gut. I think I won the conversation. I didn't lose it, at least. But I can't help feeling a kinship with the boy. Like I'm in the arena getting beaten down, too, and Hiana holds the coin that decides my fate. Alright, so I hope you enjoyed that. So like I was saying before we listened to the chapter, it's really one thing to write voices and another thing to narrate them. When I'm writing, I always try to give unique voices to my characters, and even though you can't hear them, there are a lot of things you can do with word choice, especially in the length of sentences and the things they say and how much they talk to to really separate out characters. So like in this one, Hiana, I've tried to have a really formal an educated but assured and powerful voice like she she knows her own power and and she acts and speaks in a way that she knows she's beautiful too um she's like that that powerful woman character and i hope that she comes off that way in dialogue there's kind of a truism that um your character's dialogue should speak for itself and you shouldn't have to say like hiana sneered because the sneer should be there in the words that she actually says so i'm always trying to do that um, other examples are Alethea. She speaks really straightforward. She knows she's bad at words. She does not speak eloquently. She's a very blunt speaker. Um, and then you have characters like Anon and Gaxna who are quick-witted and irreverent. They're super casual because they just don't care. Um, and I think they end up being some of my favorite characters because of that. Who doesn't like a snarky character? Um, there's another character in here that we've really only seen a touch of in chapter four, but he ends up being a pretty big figure, Isong. Um, and it took me a while to figure out how to say his voice because he's educated and he's formal. He's from the most powerful society in this world. 
Um, and he's very foreign. Their language is very foreign. And I just kind of hit a wall. I was like, well, how am I going to make him sound? So it turns out that those nuances of voice that pop out on the page can really get lost in a narration because when I'm reading it aloud, it's always my voice. I can't suddenly turn into a woman or even someone who is a different native speaker or learned English in a, in a different accent than I did. I'm still going to be this male U.S. American narrator. So um, there are some authors and narrators who just refuse to do voices. And I think there's a lot that you can do with just raising your pitch and lowering your pitch and speaking slower, or speaking faster, or doing all those things. But um, in a world as big as mine, there are just other cultures and people where those nuances aren't going to communicate just how differently I imagine them talking. And that's one of the fun things about narrating my own books is I can go there because I have already this concept of who they are and where they're going and what their culture is like that might get lost on someone who hasn't written 40,000 words of backstory. So, <laughs> um, so this philosophy of not putting in voices, it just rubs me the wrong way. And I also grew up doing impressions and voices and putting on plays with my sister. Um, I think in another life I was an actor because I love doing that stuff and I love learning languages. I speak Japanese and Luganda and Spanish um, and I love trying to get the pronunciation right and the usage as well as just the words and the grammar. So anyway, um, I just can't help giving my characters voices when I'm narrating but um, because the Tide Collar Chronicles happens on this other planet, Vina, who, who knows if it's in the same universe as ours, I never imagined my characters speaking with earthly accents. But it turns out it's really hard to make up an accent from scratch. Um, I can't do it. I think it would sound very strange. So I have to rely on the ones that, that I know that roll naturally off my tongue so the narration doesn't become broken and I can just flow into and out of them. And I guess I haven't actually used a Spanish one, or for me it would probably be Mexican Spanish, um, is the like accent that I know the best. So that's one that I still have in the bank. But um, basically, when I start to assign those Earth accents to my secondary world characters, is where it gets weird. Um, I do okay faking a British accent, but just in saying that, folks who are from uh, England or the surrounding area will know that I'm a noob because there are so many accents within uh, that country and its territories. And I really don't know what kind I'm doing. <laughs> but if you read or listened to book one, you saw that I gave the low class, the people in the Blackwater in Saray, I gave them a British accent. Um, and honestly, a lot of that was inspired by a scene from Firefly. If you're a true geek, you'll know which one. Um, but that, that meant that that very go-to accent was taken here. So... Uh, I used inflection and pitch for a lot of them, like Hiana, I basically just tried to change the way her voice sounded without giving her an accent, but we have a main character, Isong, who's from a very different part of the world, and I needed to show that. Um, and for me, the very different accents that I'm familiar with are a little strange because, yes, I can kind of do a British one and I can, I can do a decent Mexican one, but my own travels were at least my, my long travels, well, not even my travels, the places where I lived that weren't the U.S. and my, my home accent um, are a little bit, are not accents that people are totally used to um, in Japan and Uganda. So I use both of those accents here. The Ugandan one felt a little bit more fluid on my tongue, so it's the one that I chose to use more often. Um, and the Japanese one comes up with some of the minor characters. 
Um, and man, it's a real challenge while you're reading out loud to kind of adjust the slider so that you're not going like full strong accent of say someone in that country or language group who hasn't learned English super well, so it isn't very fluent for them. And they're really speaking with a heavy accent and kind of broken verses. I think that's just annoying when you listen to an audiobook. So I want them to sound like they're fluent English speakers because whatever language they're actually speaking has been translated in English for us. This all gets really complex. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> so I needed to adjust that slider somewhere in between where we got a lot of the flavor of their voice without losing any of the fluidity of a native speaker. Um, and that's a little bit harder for me with Japanese, I think because I knew so few really fluent English speakers who whose first language was Japanese. Um, and it's also really fun for me as I assign these voices to these characters and cultures to really mismatch our expectations because for better or worse, Japan is a truly a first world country and a, a powerful country. And, and that's a expectation that I have a lot of fun inverting, just like um, at least in the States, I feel like we have this notion of uh, British people as being more educated and more eloquent etc etc in their language and they're also a very well-developed and wealthy nation so it was fun for me to give the low class in Surrey that accent because it's not what we're expecting so another way that I did that was to match Japanese to this these characters who are from this this steamy feudal jungle and these tropical islands um, which are you know not very wealthy and if we can speak about development in this context not very developed and then these wealthy technocrats who are on frigid mountaintops and who are like making moves to control the world i have them speak like ugandans which is not how we think of ugandans so um that was a lot of fun for me to kind of switch things around and i feel like that's how we keep tropes fresh is by still dealing with the same material but uh inverting it as much as we can so i'm really curious to hear what you thought of what i did with the accents I know it's really risky to use them because if you don't pull them off or people aren't familiar with uh, how a particular language group sounds when they speak English, they can just come off as weird. And I expect a lot of readers to have that reaction when they hear my Ugandan accent because it's not a not an accent that uh, we're very familiar with, even though really probably a lot of East African uh, English accents like Kenyan or Tanzanian are going to sound similar to a U.S. English speaker who hasn't traveled there. And so there's a lot of people who speak English that way. It just aren't people that we come into contact with very much. So all that to say that I'm very curious about the reception. I hope I don't throw people off with it. Um, if you have a minute and you have thoughts on the voices that you've heard so far, I put a link in the show notes so you can click it and just let me know, like, does this just sound weird or um, is it fun? Or, yeah, I'm just curious what people will think. Um, it's certainly, none of these voices sound when I'm narrating them like I imagined them when I was writing them. But it turns out that my voice is just more limited than my imagination. So I have to use what I have and hope for the best. And <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble once I run out of accents that I'm familiar with. So hopefully that doesn't make me write just this core group of cultures because there's plenty more in this world. So I'll just have to, you know, get better at it and deal with it Uh when I turn around and narrate those books. So with that, I think I'm going to get back to book three, but I do have some good news for you. After all of these preview chapters, Witch of Wealth and Ruin is finally available, at least on a lovely new app called Authors Direct. Uh, it works just like Audible, except there's no subscription. Um, the great thing about it is the, the audiobooks are less expensive for you, and I get a higher royalty rate from the purchases, which means that I actually make more from them 
than I will from Audible once they approve my files. Um, and they're still quality checked just like Audible does. They're just better about it and faster. Um, so this is definitely the best way to support me if you're thinking about that and you're going to get that audiobook either way. Um, you can find a link to that in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed these preview chapters or just want to hear me doing that Ugandan accent for more of the novel, uh, I hope you'll take a look. I'm going to stop with the preview chapters now, I think, and we'll have a regular podcast next time because I've been, there's lots of things that I want to say about the book in progress and some more behind the scenes stuff that'll be fun to do. Um, and we're kind of getting into the meat of the book with this. This was chapter five. There's 33 chapters total. So I'm going to leave the rest to the people who pay for it. But I hope you've enjoyed this preview. Um, it's been a ton of fun for me to just be able to put them out as I've been working on them and to talk a little bit about the stuff that happens behind the scenes that otherwise I just don't really get a chance to talk about. So thanks for humoring me. I hope that you were also entertained by all of this. <laughs> as usual, I hope this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. I'll be back with a regular podcast in a couple of weeks. Till then, read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, please visit www.levijacobs.com. Or for a free audiobook, only available to podcast listeners, go to www.levijacobs.com/free. Thanks for listening and read on.